This is the Annex of Sociology Podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Our guest today is Dr. Hajar Yazdiha. Yazdiha is author of The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement, which was published in 2023 by Princeton University Press. Hajar is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Southern California and an affiliate at the Equity Research Institute an expert in social movements, race and ethnicity, culture, immigration, collective memory, and more. Today on the Annex, how activist groups on a wide array of issues and from across the political spectrum use the memory of Dr. King and the civil rights movement. Stay with us. Well, Haj, I am thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me to talk about your fantastic book, The Struggle for the People's King. I learned a lot from it. As it happens, I had just read Jonathan Igg's new biography, uh, King, A Life. And so following that book up with yours was a real treat. So thanks for joining me and thanks for your time. Oh my gosh, Dan, this is such a treat for me. So I'm an OG listener from back in the days of Joseph and Gabriel and Leslie. So this is like a really exciting moment for me. Okay, sweet. That's great. Me too. When I was commuting quite a long distance in Southern California, I also listened to the Annex quite frequently. And so glad to know that, Hush. Good to see another fan through the <laughs> magic of, of Zoom. Well, let's talk about your book. Your book is about how various social movement groups use and misuse the memory of Dr. King and the civil rights movement more broadly. And the variety of organizations that use this memory is really astounding. You document that between 1980 and Obama's presidency, 73% of social movement organizations in your database had invoked the memory of the civil rights movement. So why do you think the civil rights movement is invoked so often by groups with all kinds of goals and ideologies? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question because it's really like, why this collective memory and not another one? And I should say also that, you know, it was 73% of the organizations, but it was all 11 movement sectors. So there were these umbrella movement sectors, everything from animal rights to gun rights to anti-abortion. And every single one of them had used the collective memory of the civil rights movement as a tool. And, you know, when you think about the sort of basic question of why that is, there's the face value answer, which is that, I mean, the civil rights movement is considered one of the nation's most successful movements of recent history, thinking about its legal gains and its ability to create this foundation for multicultural democracy. And so it makes sense that other groups are going to pick up this kind of ready-made tactical repertoire, the tactics and the frames that are going to resonate with audiences, that are going to be effective. But one of the things that I actually argue in the book is that the memory is prolific for a reason that really goes beyond the instrumental one. It's also this powerful symbol. And that's really where the collective memory story comes in, because a collective memory is central to the nation's story of who it is. And when you think about that, then it's going to hold a lot of power for shaping political action in the present to direct the future. And so when you think about the story of the civil rights movement, it's this great story of American redemption. And, you know, it kind of goes hand in hand with the Civil War in that way. It's the story of a moral triumph of good over evil. It's this moment where, you know, the ultimate stain of American history of enslavement gets written out. And it's told in this particular way that actually allows, I think, every American to see themselves in it, you know, as its natural inheritor. And so in that way, it's a really powerful moral resource. I love this because I think most people today would say, oh, yeah, if I were in the civil rights movement time, I definitely would be marching with Dr. King. I definitely would be out in the streets. You know, John Lewis would be my BFF. Yeah. Uh, and when we look at the data from that time, that just 
not true for the majority of white Americans, uh, particularly towards the end of Dr. King's life and in the wake of many of the gains of the civil rights movement. No, I mean, that's that drives me crazy. And I'm like writing an op-ed specifically about that right now, because I think present day, a lot of American publics kind of look down on social movements. There's a lot of disdain. There's always this comparison being made to the civil rights movement. Like, oh, you know, civil rights movement activists wouldn't be so disruptive. And, you know, oh, Dr. King would be really ashamed of you for all of this trouble that you're causing. And it's true. I mean, the last year of his life, it was 75% of Americans you know, hated the guy. And this includes up to President Reagan, who's the guy who signs the King holiday into law and really doesn't want to. And I think remembering that story is so essential because it does help us rethink the way that we look at social movements now. You know, what is it that's actually making us resist the work that they're doing? What is it that makes us look down on them in this way? So I, I love that you drew that out. This book is great. The story about how Reagan is pushed to sign the MLK holiday into law is definitely worth reading and was new information for me. In the previous question, I just mentioned your social movement organizations database, and you talked about these 11 different genres or types of movements, and you built this database in order to investigate how activist groups across issues and political partisanship drew upon civil rights memory. So can you explain the data you drew on for this book and how you collected it? Because it was really impressive. I mean, I was thinking about how much work this took to put together. Unpack that for us. Dust, <laughs> yeah. You know, dust off your shoulder here. Tell us about that process. I love it. No, I'm like sweating thinking about it. It was a multi-year effort, as most dissertations are, but it honestly extended past, you know, graduation. And when I actually read my methodological appendix now, I'm overwhelmed by how much I did simply because I went into the project not particularly knowing what I was going to find. And the questions that arose through the process just meant that I had to go back to the drawing board and gather more data. So, I mean, initially, like you mentioned, the project was based on this organizational database that was drawn from Neil Karen and Adamenta, and they had developed this database of organizations mentioned in the New York Times in the 20th century. And so from that database, I sampled from the 11 movement sectors, 10 organizations per sector. And then I did this LexisNexis search to see if they had used the civil rights movement in any way. But ultimately, I mean, this was the database that I used to trace the invocations of collective memory, you know, over the 40 years, 1980 to 2020. But after that, I mean, it was really the story of, okay, you know, we see that movements are using memory, but how are they using memory? Do these uses of memory actually matter? And then how are they related, right? Are they kind of disparate strategies or are they telling us something about a larger pattern? And that was where I needed the case studies. And so in three of the chapters, I go into depth and I use these rival movements as paired cases. And so I use a kind of range of identities and positionalities across the ground. And then the thing that I hold constant is the movement strategy, which is using the collective memory of the civil rights movement. And so, you know, typically with frame studies, you'll actually vary the frame to see how different frames land. And in this case, I wanted to hold the frame constant and vary the groups to think about how the groups that were linking themselves to memory, how did they matter? And that was where I ended up, you know, with a chapter on LGBTQ groups versus family values groups. And then there was one on immigrant rights groups versus nativists, one on Muslim rights versus the anti-Muslim movement. 
And these were the case studies that required drawing out all of these event databases and tracing these trajectories. So it was a lot of heavy lifting. And then, I mean, I should also add, as a sort of separate project with Charlie Kurzman, I'd also collected this data with Muslim focus groups, which ended up being a central part of the data in Chapter 5, which is the Muslim rights movement chapter. I mean, so I could talk about this forever, but all to say that, you know, now when I talk to my grad students, I'm like, you know, yes, you should absolutely have a very clear research design. You shouldn't waste your time gathering a bunch of data you're not going to use. But I mean, I didn't take my own advice. So I'm like, it could go either way. You know, either you end up with a ton of data that gives you a much more nuanced story than you expected, or, you know, you find yourself spinning your wheels. Yeah, I was just thinking about all of the work that you did, archival work, and of course, the focus groups and following these mini trails of data. And I thought to myself, here's a person with a lot of energy on you, Hush. I Well, I should say there, no, the energy was lacking. And also during this time, I, you know, had my first child and like lost a whole year to just postpartum malaise. So I want to be very clear to listeners, especially anybody who's in a similar position that, you know, you'll get over the hump and hopefully you will have a burst of energy, but also hopefully it won't take you like eight years to write your book. So who knows? (laughs) Well, I do think one of the great things about this podcast, I hope, is that we provide a little bit of behind the scenes information for early career people, for people who are struggling in the midst of data collection or in the midst of writing things up and maybe spinning their wheels a bit and and not necessarily finding that hook that's going to drive their analysis. So I appreciate the model of your book as well, because it gives us a lot of ways to think about data and about frame theory, as you were saying, in a new way. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. So, well, I was just going to jump in really quick. And I was Go just going to say, I like that. And I also think I wish mo- more of us would talk about the process. I mean, I think there's always all we really see is the finished product, which is usually very shiny. And it seems like it kind of appeared out of nowhere. And we think like people must be really brilliant to have created that. But I think hearing about the process can actually make it feel a lot more approachable. And this is definitely for me, like with grad students who are looking at that uphill climb and And sometimes it feels insurmountable. I think that's so essential. Yeah, I hope we can do that work on this podcast, along with other people who are doing it too, of course. All right, well, I want to focus in a little bit on page 47. So on page 47, you have a nice tree illustration of what you call the gnarled branches of collective rights memory. And you identify two major branches with several offshoots of each. And those two major branches you call, on the one hand, colorblind individualism, and on the other hand, unfinished dream or civil rights for all. I wonder if you'd give us an example about how each of these operates after about 1990 or so. Give us some flavor about those branches. Oh my gosh, yeah. And it's so funny with the the gnarled branch metaphor, I still struggle with it. I'm like, I don't know if it actually lines up with the kind of theoretical argument I'm trying to make, but I do think visually it helps me express something that I try to claim in the book, which is that, you know, these uses of memory aren't like these disparate bows, you know, they're not like these straight trajectories or, you know, quote unquote, reputational trajectories every time. They can often be intertwined and relational and quite messy and actually held in tension. So there's always this tension between the kind of counter use of memory and the either revisionist memory, whatever the dominant memory is. So the two central fractures, as I frame it, in the the base of the collective memory are the ones that are instituted through the Reagan holiday or the Reagan signing of the King holiday. And it's essentially the King family's unfinished dream. So this is where King's legacy will be carried on and will continue to build the beloved community, will continue to try to eradicate systemic racism, and then also expand the beloved community to include all sorts of different groups. There's this moment where Coretta Scott King specifically says that, you know, 
the the legacy of Dr. King does not belong to any one group and that it's really for all. And then on the other hand, you have the institutionalized memory that is centered by Reagan and his allies. And this is the story where he institutionalizes a Dr. King who represent colorblind individualism. He's going to be used through the Reagan presidency to roll back civil rights. He's really going to justify a free market and say that, you know, King doesn't want us to talk about race and he's lifted the burden of racism from this country and it's over. So these are the two branches that go into the Clinton presidency, which is kind of a pivotal moment because a lot of reactionary politics happen during this time. The Clinton presidency is seen as this moment when the LGBTQ rights group is going to really have some power, right? They've got an ally in office and they call themselves the new civil rights movement. You start hearing things like gay is the new black. And so they see themselves as kind of carrying on the unfinished dream. And they're doing a lot of this work of making these links between gay identity and black identity as kind of equally oppressed, even though, you know, we know that gay people can be black people. Then on the other hand, though, you have the reactionary politics that are coming out. And this is, you know, for me, one of the larger stories is how this white Christian victimhood is emerging. And this is the moment where you have like Newt Gingrich's contract with America. There is this conservative backlash that's really centered on dismantling the safety net, rolling back multicultural democracy, you know, really focusing on this language of personal responsibility to obscure racism. And so I think that this moment where you see a real fracture in these two branches, and then there's all sorts of offshoots that emerge over the next 30 years. Speaking of Gingrich and Clinton, welfare reform, right? The, yep. the Which was, I think, 96, right? Which really does focus on personal responsibility, getting a job, any job, and downplaying the systemic barriers that poor people and people, poor people of color in particular, face in the United States when it comes to discrimination and racism in the in the job market, in the housing market, in the education market, in many, many markets. Yeah, 100%. I mean, and I think that's one of the kind of deeper stories of the book, too, is that even the so-called progressive establishment, as in the Democratic Party, are still kind of doing this work of misappropriation as well. They're still doing kind of this work of perpetuating this idea of colorblindness. It's just that instead of doing it in a really revisionist way, way as the right-wing groups are. They're doing it much more in a kind of multicultural way where, you know, we do the colorblindness because we're all the same. And so it's still in its own way is obfuscating the racism and the deeper systems. Okay, well, I think that leads to a question specifically about racism and anti-racism. So for those who need to hear it, what do you make (laughs) of the argument that when anti-racist activists argue that we should be conscious of racially disparate outcomes, that they are paying too much attention to race and therefore perpetuating racism. I know that's an argument that resonates with some of the arguments made by groups in your book. Yeah. And I mean, even by like well-meaning audiences that I've spoken to. And I get it. You know, when you think about how colorblindness sounds or race neutrality sounds, it sounds really rosy. Like it sounds nice. It sounds like, you know, we're not going to think about our differences. We're going to focus on the things that make us the same. Like It's kind of what we teach our kids, right? You know, like just treat everybody equally and everything's going to be good. But it's really this false conception because just because race is a social construction doesn't mean that it doesn't have real effects. And it's really the system of racism that created race that's very real. It has real impacts. And so, you know, when you're doing the kind of colorblindness move, whether it's legally or culturally, just don't talk about race because it makes it worse. You're actually perpetuating this myth of meritocracy. 
right? It's actually making it really unclear to see the systems of power that are unequally distributing these opportunities and these resources. And so the way I see it is it's really about providing context. The goal of this anti-racist work is not to make race invisible, but it's to make the systems of inequality that are based on race apparent to everyone. So then they can be dismantled. And then for that to happen, you have to see race. Yeah, I think it reminds me of a thing I've been thinking about a lot, which is the way that the colorblind argument really resonates with certain liberal assumptions that are the dominant frameworks, maybe the dominant framework that many people who often have a certain level of access to uh, resources, knowledge, privilege of various kinds, assume when they come into conversations about social life and social inequality. Um, Yeah, 100%. I mean, I feel like that's the core of, you know, Bonia Silva's argument. And he he even lays out like these four frames and abstract liberalism is one of them that are used to kind of obscure racism under this guise of colorblindness. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I think it's hard because I always say this, I think there's good intentions in a lot of these sort of misunderstandings or at worst, it's really this willful ignorance, if we're being honest. But, you know, and I think that actually does make it harder to talk about sometimes because there is sometimes this perception of, for one thing, maybe you're just being like an elitist, you know, you're Mm. using these fancy words on me. And I think sometimes there's this perception that you're just kind of perpetuating the quote unquote woke industry. I'm glad you mentioned ignorance because we had Jenny Mueller on the Annex a while back. And of course, she's written about her theory of racial ignorance. I encourage everyone to check out both the podcast and Mueller's work. Yes, I love that episode. It's very good. Just fantastic scholarship from Jenny Mueller. Okay, I have to ask the next question because otherwise we'll spin off and talk about lots of other cool things. One thing I did notice, though, and maybe it's because of my background previously at a private religiously affiliated one, and also just what's happening with white Christian nationalists and other groups in our society today, but white Christian nationalists appear and reappear in the book. They played important roles in the family values and LGBTQ rights chapter, the immigrants' rights chapter, and the Muslim rights and Islamophobia movements chapter. Do you have any sense as to why this group is so active in seeking to use civil rights memory to deny minority group rights so often? You know, are they particularly well-funded, well-organized, something else? All of the above, right? And you're absolutely right. The white Christian nationalism story is at the heart of the book. When we're thinking about this rise of a revisionist history being used to roll back multicultural democracy, this is really where it's starting and it's also where it's going right now. And so, I mean, I think a big part of it is that when you see these gains of the civil rights movement, you get the kind of counter-revolutions of the 60s and the 70s. This is this kind of mythical vision of the United States as a Christian nation being threatened. And there's this perception that has to be protected. It has to be preserved. You know, we have to, quote unquote, take back America. And it's this coordinated strategic attack that emerges. And it's one that uses the financial influence. It uses political and cultural influence. And what really kills me is that when you do look at it, the long durée, you see how strategic it is and just how much it takes a long view in a way that makes you shake your head a little bit at progressive establishments for being so focused on putting out these immediate fires that there just isn't that long game in the same way. And I think it's, especially when you look at some of the roots of it, you look at the funding. They have really good funding from really wealthy people like the Koch brothers. And they, you know, stack the courts by using things like the Federalist Society Mm -hmm. and creating these judicial pipelines. But then they also have these really brilliant strategists who understand political psychology. They understand the media game. And, you know, you look at somebody like Chris Rufo, who's on Twitter, which I'll never stop calling it Twitter. He's just telling us the strategies. 
day to day. And sure enough, just a couple of weeks later, whatever he says is going to happen happens. And, you know, it's not because he's like this magic sort of fortune teller. It's because these strategies are actually really powerful and they understand the media game and how it works. So I think that the story of the white Christian nationalism and, you know, their use of the civil rights movement is they're claiming the symbolic power of the movement that has threatened them. If they can claim it, then they can frame it, they can use it, they can use it for their own good, and they can also weaken its use for progressive groups. One thing that what you just said made me remember is just how any kind of movement or almost any kind of symbol is so multivalent. And so, of course, Dr. King is an activist for a long time. I mean, his life is tragically cut short, of course, but he's an activist for a couple of decades. And the civil rights movement has a long duration. You could trace it back to the earliest revolts of enslaved people in the United States. And of course, in the Haitian Revolution and other events like that. So the fact that these different movement groups can latch on to the Christianity of King, which is associated with things like peace and love and acceptance and this kind of equality before God, and at the same time downplay the real purpose of those things in King's thought and in the civil yes. rights movement's activism. Yes. And I mean, that is one of the things that comes up when you look at some behind the scenes strategies is even as early as like the 70s, they're thinking about, okay, so Dr. King's legacy is going to become a thing, you know, Coretta Scott King and the Congress people, they've been fighting for the King holiday, right, for 15 years. And so conservatives are realizing, well, maybe we can kind of use his Christianity to our advantage and make him our own. And then by 2006, you get this huge report out of the Heritage Foundation that that's about how to claim King's conservative legacy and Christian legacy. And it's exactly, you know, it's not even just the kind of peace love story. It's really about claiming that he would be opposed to things that are supposedly, you know, counter to evangelical Christianity, things like homosexuality and abortion and women's rights. And so at every turn, it's not even just that they're discrediting their progressive opposition. It's also that they're claiming the memory for themselves to show that they are the new victims. And so it's also, you know, coordinated with this rise of white victimhood and this perception that white people, white Christians are under threat. I mean, there's so many resonances with some things that are happening these days, but I want to focus back on the book because we could get talking about contemporary things all day. On pages 114 and 115, you tell the story of one bus from the Immigrant Workers' Freedom Ride. Now, this was a movement for immigrant rights, for inclusion of immigrants in American society, for immigration reform in the U.S., can you tell us what that ride was intending to accomplish and what happened when the Border Patrol agents stopped the bus at the Sierra Blanca checkpoint along the U.S.-Mexico border? And more broadly, what does this incident say about the national boundaries of civil rights movement memory? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I love that story, too. The Immigrant Workers Freedom Ride is really this moment in 2001 where immigrant labor organizers are thinking about how to build on the labor movement and create a kind of wider movement for immigration reform. And at the time, they're thinking specifically about protecting these immigrant laborers, especially in California, the day laborers, for example. And they need a kind of nationwide strategy that's going to draw attention to the cause, push congressional support, but then also garner public sympathy, public attention to the issue, while also creating a sense of consciousness among immigrants themselves to build a base that can mobilize and come together. 
And what's really remarkable is that just the planning alone is a two-year effort. And you know, they start in 2001, and the organizers say specifically that they don't want to do this freedom ride without getting the buy-in of Black leaders, and especially Black civil rights leaders. They realize that it would be disrespectful for them to just co-opt the memory without actually getting the blessing. And so that's a big part of the work they do in that first year is just having these meetings. But skip ahead a little bit, and when they actually unroll this Freedom Ride in 2003, you know, they've already got like John Lewis on board and Jim Lawson, who was one of the initial trainers of civil rights activists. And the goal is really to prove that immigrants are Americans too. And it's kind of this earlier strategy among a lot of immigrant groups of doing this sort of performative assimilation, which really does kind of require upholding the power structure. So it's kind of that rosy civil rights memory where we're all Americans and we're all immigrants. And then for nativists, on the other hand, that also means that they have to maintain these exclusive national boundaries. So they're going to have to make claims that these immigrants are the outgroup and that they're never going to fit or assimilate into national identity. And so I say that because it comes into the strategy they end up using. So in this moment at the Sierra Blanca checkpoint, what's interesting about it is that it was an intentional way to create this kind of high risk, high stakes media moment. And the riders realized that they really needed something that would make the claim to oppression like black civil rights really, really clear. And so they got support from volunteer lawyers and they trained their riders for this high risk action. They trained them in their rights. They told them exactly what to say when ICE agents detained them. And they expected, I mean, they, they were doing like 800 miles along the board. They expected that they were going to get stopped. And so sure enough, one of the buses does get stopped and these ICE agents board the bus and they start demanding identification. They demand documentation of these select riders. And they just point to the little sign on them for the legal refusal to do this. And so they all get detained. They get held individually and questioned. You know, during this whole time, people are crying. And then also as part of the strategy, they're also singing civil rights anthems throughout. And so eventually, without any explanation, the ICE agents just let them go. They load them on the bus and they say, just go. And so they don't even have a chance to figure out if anybody's been detained. And they ride off and then they stop at a place that feels safe. And they all load off the bus and do a head count. And as soon as they announce that everybody's accounted for, you know, everybody just erupts. You know, they're cheering and they're crying and they're hugging. And journalists are on the bus with them documenting every moment. So this really becomes this critical way for the movement to establish that they are a credible inheritor of the civil rights movement, that the oppression they face is very similar to Black people. And I think what's so fascinating and, and sort of devastating about it is that they claim national identity by proving that they are oppressed, right? And so it's like the racialized violence becomes the entryway to proving that they're American too. So I think in that way, it's actually quite the mirror to thinking about modes of inclusion and the ways that folks have to prove their own victimhood in our system. But I think there, there are so many good stories from that chapter. And I think just the ride itself really says something about what the long strategy could look like, especially when grassroots activists take seriously the fact that the civil rights movement is unfinished work. That's a great story. And the chapter is wonderful. Glad you mentioned these activists working with Black activist leaders and communities, because one of the things that comes across across, I think, often in social movement work is the importance of intersectional solidarity across these identity lines, across topic lines, getting the labor movement connected to the environmental movement, connected to the environmental justice and the environmental racism 
movement and trying to both recognize areas of interest and commonality that can be organized around, but also important differences that need to be considered, right? When we're talking about who can take risks and what risks are appropriate. And also just the fact of putting your body on the line and and doing something that is civil disobedience, which I think is something that you document in your book, but also it seems like we're likely to see in the future. Yeah, maybe. No, 100%. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. We'll see. Well, I think we haven't talked a bunch about your other chapters. Everyone should definitely read those. They're, they're fascinating. The Islamophobia chapter, the Muslim rights chapter, the way that Muslim groups in the United States changed how they were thinking about their role in societies, who they aligned with, I think is a really fascinating story across time. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I think it also resonates with the other two chapters in that it's exactly what you're saying about the challenges of solidarity politics. I mean, that's something I think about in my research more broadly all the time, and then also just in my personal life. And I think there's always a kind of performative solidarity that can be really beautiful in the moment, right? People standing like shoulder to shoulder, you know, forming a human chain, whatever it is. But at the same time, you know, the solidarity that ends up mattering in the long term is the kind that's introspective and that really accounts for power differentials. Mm -hmm. And so in all three of those chapters, that's something that each of those movements has to do, the progressive movements, is that kind of internal reckoning. And in each case, it really does come down to reckoning with their own movement histories of anti-Blackness. So also the chapter on Muslim rights is these Muslim immigrants that have so long trying to kind of sought this aspirational whiteness in the sense that they see upward mobility as aligning themselves with white Americans, folding themselves into the dominant group. And I mean, I think that's the story of immigration in the U.S. in general, because whiteness means your full humanity, right? That's how you get your rights. But, you know, that's really what happens is post 9-11, they just keep bumping up against the kind of boundaries that are placed on them. And these are, again, the kind of national boundaries of American identity, also the racial boundaries of American identity. And they're always outside them, no matter how wealthy they are, you know, no matter how deeply embedded they are in their communities. And that actually becomes a form of awakening. It builds this political consciousness where they can actually think about themselves as a racialized group and not as bad thing, as a, a sort of way to connect with other Black Americans and Brown Americans and forge solidarities that actually help them take on the carceral system writ large because they realize like the Muslims' experiences of surveillance are not unlike Black Americans' experiences of racial profiling and police violence, are not unlike Latinx people's perceptions of deportation, right? Mm-hmm. And thinking about like ICE and, and all of this. So anyway, just to think about all of these as intertwined is is also this powerful way. So that's a way that I think about collective memory as a bridge. It's a way to to bring people together just as much as we see collective memory becoming a way to wedge groups. I'm glad we went there because that's really powerful and important. I was also thinking about, you know, every time there's a ramp up on immigration, so-called violations or people who are longstanding members of their communities and they're forcibly removed from the United States, these, these stories come up and it makes us think about how there are so many connections between the various forms of social control and policing experience in our country that we often take for granted as if it were normal and and natural or unremarkable. Yeah, 
I mean, these infrastructures are totally built on each other. They're often funded by the same people and they uphold the status quo in the same way. So that's one of the big takeaways for me is thinking about, you know, all of these disparate uses of the memory of the civil rights movement, memory of Dr. King. They seem like they're all kind of random and unrelated, but at the end of the day, they're all speaking to the broader system of power and how it gets maintained and reproduces itself. I did really appreciate that in your book, that this focus on and returning to the practices of power. And so one of the things that sometimes I feel is missing from some sociology that I read is that focus on and concern with power and its distribution in our society. And so if we're analyzing institution and we don't have a sense of how systems of power and control and domination work, then we're shortchanging ourselves in terms of our analysis. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think at the heart of every explanation, which isn't to say that, you know, we shouldn't do our work and try to identify causal mechanisms and all this, but it is to say that it's too easy sometimes to create a social explanation that isn't embedded in that historical context that explains why those differences exist. All right. Well, I think this is a good segue to my next question, which does touch on this idea of power and visibility and responsibility. Your book ends with a discussion of Me Too, Black feminism and the forgotten Black women who were key leaders in the civil rights movement and Black politics and culture. Folks like Audre Lorde and Fannie Lou Hamer and Tarana Burke. You write, no amount of formal education has eradicated white supremacy. And we're talking just after two Ivy League presidents, both women and one, a Black woman, have resigned from their posts. What are your thoughts about the prospects for rejecting misuses of civil rights memory and telling a more complete story about the neglected women who drove the movement then and are so essential now? Oh, that's a hard question, Dan. Yeah, I mean, I think in that chapter, for me, this was an attempt to think about what truth-telling and reconciliation could look like through the politics of memory. And Me Too intersecting with the rise of Black Lives Matter and Crenshaw's Say Her Name list. Mm -hmm. All of this is a way to think about some of the tensions that arise. And then also, again, this question of internal reckoning. So in this chapter, a lot of white feminists are doing the internal reckoning of thinking about the histories of anti-Blackness, especially against Black women in the country and then also within their movement. And it's funny because I end that chapter with the realization that it's still not clear if that reckoning actually solved anything, actually registered in a meaningful way, because the chapter does end with a Black woman becoming the CEO of the Me Too movement organization. And, you know, I'm happy you brought up Claudine Gay because I think it says something about elite capture. It says something about the limits of DEI when it's limited simply to putting people in high places or making them the face of an organization. I mean, it's something I show throughout the book especially for conservative organizations that want to maintain their power. They want to maintain the work they're doing, but they want to put a contemporary face on it. A lot of times they talk about how it's bad for business to be racist or sexist uh, or anti-gay. And so you think about an institution like Harvard, you know, giving itself a face of a Black woman and then the limits of that, right? The takedown and just how quickly it can happen. And that just because you threw in some representation, it doesn't mean that it fundamentally changed the structure of the organization. And we could bring in like Victor Ray's racialized organizations theory here. Like there's so many ways that we could use our sociological tools just to understand the limits 
of a kind of performative inclusion. And, you know, there was like the Fannie Lou Hamer quote about how it's not just about putting, you know, Black women in high places. It's about changing the system itself. And I think that is continually the challenge because it's too easy to throw crumbs, you know, do the kind of elite capture Mm -hmm. to do interest convergence and and say like, well, the work is done. And I think that's the part that kills me. That's the part that keeps me up at night because I just don't know what the answer is. And so, you know, you asked about challenging these misuses of memory and something I struggled with in the conclusion too, because it's like you said, I, I said doing these accurate histories, like writing better textbooks, that's not the silver bullet. It's definitely important. And I say all the time how we have to really be vocal and advocate against this legislation that works to create these revisionist histories or just erase history altogether. But that's not going to fundamentally change the culture of willful ignorance. And it's too easy even for you know progressives to kind of turn a blind eye to to just how vile and malicious the larger politics are that are trying to keep us from understanding ourselves because God forbid we actually realize, oh, you know, the Democrats and Republicans aren't that different. If we actually come together on the ground, all of us who are suffering, we could have a revolution. So you know, that's just me saying crazy stuff. I don't think it's crazy stuff. I think about this a lot, a lot too. I did want to highlight the role of some conservative women like in the evangelical movement or in the uh, anti-abortion movement. People like Phyllis Schlafly, who are mm-hmm. advocating against the Equal Rights Amendment and the symbolic power of white womanhood in those movements. When, of course, yeah, as we know from Schlafly's case in particular, right, here's a very intelligent, very well-educated woman who nonetheless publicly demurs to her husband, right? Yeah. When she's really the one who's calling the shots in an important way. The other thing that I just wanted to follow up on was this notion that, and I'm glad you said there's no silver bullet because I think part of the mistake that is often made is the idea that there's like one weird trick that's going to solve centuries of systemic racism and sexism and other forms of oppression, right? So these systems don't get built in a minute and they're going to take much longer to dismantle. But for some reason, there's the idea that we can have one person, Dr. King, or one summer of protest summer of 2020 or mm-hmm. or a couple of high profile incidents of police violence that's going to fundamentally transform how policing is done in the country. And that's just not a realistic expectation. Yeah. I mean, I think that's it. And when I read some of the true histories of the civil rights movement, I'm always struck by, for one thing, just how boring and extensive the work of organizing is. You know, it's a lot of meetings and rooms and, you know, talking through logistics and training people over and over and over again. And it's that long relational work that is sometimes lacking, I think, from people's political imaginations when they think about the work that it's going to take to change things. And I think the other thing that's so often missing is a deep understanding that you are going to have to give something up. So I think that's the part where I see so much of well-meaning kind of liberal folks kind of get out on the streets, you know, to protest against Trump with their pussy hats on, or even, you know, after George Floyd to be out on the streets, but then so easily to slip right back into the memory foam of society, you know, like it's hard to, to move out of those molds, especially when you're comfortable and you don't want to lose anything. And so I think it's getting people to understand that it might feel like losing something in the short term, but in the long term, everybody will benefit. That's one of the reasons in the conclusion, I emphasize that white supremacy hurts white people too. And I think that's one of the points that I wish we could collectively drive home more is that it really is like that 0.1% that is 
thriving in this environment. Everybody else is hurting. And so, I mean, I just think the impulse to get people not just to care, but also to mm -hmm. be willing to do these sort of risky actions, to be willing to lose something, to say something unpopular and to face the consequences. I think that is a really big challenge. Well, you're bringing to mind something that JT Thomas and I talked about the first time he was on the podcast about this idea of having to give something up. And the other part is just like the emotion of feeling in solidarity has, you know, in a movement setting or in a march is, is very good. But often that, that feeling is fleeting. And yes, and it doesn't, it's the material work. It's the organizing and the organizers that are really involved and instrumental in helping people build that community level power. That's it. And I mean, I, I've been lucky enough to talk to and with community organizers as I've been touring and talking about the book. And I'm just blown away by the challenges of the work at the grassroots level because it's so easy to sit in the ivory tower and look down with a little eagle's eye view and like point out the patterns and talk about the conceptual abstractions. But to actually do the daily work, it is a grind. It is thankless. You know, you are constantly facing emotional burnout and yet they persevere. And so I think a lot of times the question is, you know, it's not that nobody's doing the work. It's just that the rest of us are ignoring it. Yeah, I think that's right. I've been really fortunate to know some organizers as well. And it is, as you say, often thankless and long, long duration work of relationship building and power mapping and doing the kinds of very hard, sustained, difficult work. Okay, so a couple more questions here as we close out. So a group of students here at the University of Alabama Huntsville read your book in Dr. Jen Sims' race and ethnicity class. And I went to their presentation on your book and I asked if they had any questions for you since we were planning this conversation. They had lots of good ones, but one I thought I'd ask on their behalf is how did you deal with the hate that you saw while researching this book? You're in the archives, you're reading news accounts, you're looking at all kinds of data. What was it like to sit with these viewpoints that were often hateful? Yeah. Oh, man, that's that's a big question. And first of all, thank you to Dr. Sims and her students. Like that is so meaningful to me and just special. And I really appreciate them taking the time. I think for any of us who do research on either just painful subjects or ones that really focus specifically on hate, there is going to be a kind of emotional toll that it will take on you. I think for me, though, it wasn't necessarily a surprise, right? I mean, I'm studying these right wing organizations that I already know are going to be saying some crazy stuff. Sure. So, but I do think for me, it was for one thing, the extent of the hate that was jarring, because I think it's easy, especially for those of us who grew up like in the multicultural 80s and 90s to think that that type of racism had really been buried, right? That was like really rare to actually have racism as hate in your heart, because all the time we're talking about like racism isn't just about individual feelings. It's, it's about the system. Well, it's like, oh, okay. So the individual hate part actually is prevalent as well. But I think just on a personal level, it was was kind of cathartic to see just how much resistance there was on the other side. And so being able to understand these moments as also always countered, right? There were always, there was always a rival movement. There was always a cultural force that was countering it. It was until the Trump presidency, it hadn't been emboldened quite so explicitly in the public sphere by sort of the top political people. Two things. I mean, one, I meant to say earlier, freedom is an endless meeting, right? Or democracy is an endless meeting. I believe your colleagues uh, said something like that, Lichterman and Eliasov. But also freedom is a constant struggle. So the pairing of these movements 
movements I thought was a really creative way to get at the themes that you're developing in the book as well. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And thanks for reminding me too, that one of the major takeaways on a personal level for me is that you're just not going to reach everybody Mm. and realizing just how deeply entrenched some of these ideologies are, some of these conceptions of human superiority, thinking about people that are subhuman and and don't deserve to be treated equally, but also should be removed according to some of these groups. Mm -hmm. That for me was instructive because I think for so long I've had very much of a my fascination with framing for me has always been about oh, how do you reach the people that are seem so hard to reach? Like, what is the perfect frame? Like, how do you tap into their emotions? What does it take to win the hearts and minds of that group? And realizing that you never will and that that doesn't, it doesn't matter. You don't need them. That for me has actually been cathartic. Yeah. I mean, I often think about the theory of change. Like, so what is your theory of change? And so for some people it is, well, you need to be educated. And for some people it is, we need to highlight the pain of some oppression or marginalized groups so that your emotions and your empathy get activated. For other people, it's we need concrete policy changes that makes discrimination or harm for some group or some individual sanctionable, Mm -hmm. like a material consequence for doing something like harming another individual in some way that's physical or in other other ways, or unjustly denying someone some kind of publicly available benefit, like access to a service that's available to the public, for example, like web design, for example. And your move, your action activist move is going to shift based on what your theory of change is. Yeah. I want to ask one final question about the book, and it goes to some of the stuff we were just talking about, and it's really about reactions. So what reactions have you received to the book, particularly from partisan actors? Are there critics out there who say your book is too liberal or woke? And if so, how do you respond to those criticisms? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's such a perfect follow-up to the last question, because I think it's related. I haven't had the honor of speaking to particular partisan actors. I think many of the people that have come to my book talks and public events have been folks who either already kind of knew this stuff and then were understanding it through a more sociological lens or folks who, you know, really like Dr. King or lived during the civil rights movement. So I actually haven't had the opportunity to talk directly to folks who would really disagree. But I will say, having published several op-eds on the book, the comment sections, on the other hand, have given me deep insight into how people feel about these ideas. I think for me, one of the more laughable critiques that's come up regularly is, well, how can she know what Dr. King would actually say? And I'm like, oh, because we have extensive speeches with his literal words and books that he wrote with his literal words. That's how we would know what he would say. So for me, that part is always the kind of LOL, but then, you know, also disappointing because you're like, okay, well, you just really aren't trying here. I think the other piece too, though, is the realization this is tied to a lot of the things I've said. The realization that people are always going to call something woke if it in any way questions the status quo and that that's not my audience. And I think kind of accepting that not everybody is your audience can be really freeing because Mm. for me, one of the things that really tied me down and was debilitating for a while in the writing of the book was trying to figure out who my audience was. And initially it was just academics. And then I really wanted to say something broader. And the question was, well, to whom? And I say in the preface that, you know, I wrote the book with the conviction that evading social reality is its own violence and that I really hoped the book would be read with the spirit of curiosity and self-reflection. And I think I was really kind of talking to a lot of the sort of white liberals and moderates in my life and trying to say something to them about potentially taking seriously the idea that that moderate stance was just as harmful as some of the right-wing reactionary work. And I think that's something that now 
as I've talked to more audiences, I actually wish I'd made the book more radical, right? Like I wish I'd included more of the resistance from the bottom because mm. I think it's more where I stand personally. And then I also think it's it's the part that's maybe more useful because it's sort of moving away from the idea that you can actually educate people into acting. I'm glad you mentioned that line. Hush, what was the line again from the preface? It was, I've written this book with the conviction that the yes. evasion of social reality is its own violence. Yes. Okay. I'm glad you mentioned that. That was one of my favorite lines in the book because I think it's so true that these are real harms you're talking about in the book. The thing about audience, maybe it's just me, but sometimes when I'm writing something I think might be controversial, that critical voice gets in my head and I say, well, I don't want to say it that way because yeah. that's going to trigger this person who, by the way, already is going to say that regardless. I mean, I think that's yes. one of the things that I feel many of our colleagues in sociology, they can let that critical voice dull the sharpness of their prose yes. uh, because they fear that reaction when it's always going to be there. If there's one thing I think we've learned from recent attacks on academic freedom and not just the critical race theory, moral panic, but others is that there is a coordinated, well-funded, long-range project of dismantling important pro-multiracial, pro-multi-ethnic, pro-egalitarian democracy institutions in our country. And that by soft peddling, we're not protecting ourselves. And we're yeah. also not safeguarding the project of a democratic education. Yeah, that's beautifully said. And I think it's like, you know, in the conclusion, I talk about how, you know, so many sort of well-meaning liberal establishment folks want to take seriously the quote unquote other side, but that by doing so, they play in their their game, right? Like they yeah. start using they start using the same language. And now we're debating for years what critical race theory really is. Instead of understanding these as really functional distractions. Chris Rufo himself said, like that was the goal was to create this distraction, to create this moral panic, because then all of a sudden attention could be drawn away from the work of dismantling racism. And we could talk about the kind of threat in schools and this woke culture and how it's taking over and indoctrinating people. And it it's that piece that makes it really painful when you actually see the strategy and you see just how effective it is. Well, I know there's a lot more conversation conversation that's happening on Twitter right now. I also am not going to call it the new thing either about this very topic in terms of complicity of mainstream media outlets. But I want to thank you again for writing this book and turn if we can to a little bit of banter. This has been a great conversation, very fun, but an additional fun component of the Annex is our banter segment. So I follow you on Instagram and I saw you recently had a post about fast fashion and I think you were getting rid of a bunch of clothes. And I wonder what you could say about being dressed for class at USC. Now I used to work in the Los Angeles area and I'm aware of the focus on image and professionalism and so forth in that area of the world. So what could you tell us about being dressed for class at USC, especially as as a junior faculty member. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, the fast fashion post, just for listeners, it was in my Insta story and it's like four giant trash bags filled with just like really cheap clothes that I'd bought like in my late 20s and my 30s, you know, like H&M and Forever 21. And I cannot tell you why I held on to them for so long. I mean, the fact that I still have them like a decade later <laughs> is a question in itself. And I think, you know, we could like talk about the, the memory and the nostalgia question. Like there's all this sort of sociology behind it too. But dressing at USC has been a journey. So I have been here for seven years now. And I think initially when I started, I was really conscious of a lot of 
you know, the literature that we've read, the studies that show mm -hmm. that women are judged more harshly, particularly women of color, and that honestly, you can't win, right? So if you dress too feminine, you're not taken seriously. Like if you dress too casual, you're seen as unserious. And so there's this kind of middle ground that unfortunately also feeds into a system of kind of white dominance where you're essentially trying to dress like a man, like a white man. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, that was just, if I'm being like very concrete, I was wearing a lot of Ann Taylor. So it was like basic clothing and blouses and blazers. But now seven years in, I mean, part of the context of being in Los Angeles, for one thing, it's hot a lot of the time. So you can't be wearing like a full suit. And then also among students, I mean, there is such variation in fashion. Like everybody truly has their own distinct style, which is really contrary to my undergrad experience at University of Virginia, where it was like so mm -hmm. much preppy popped collars, you know, like early 2000s Abercrombie. I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Like who could forget? And so it's really cool to see the variations actually inspired me a little bit more because I think for one thing, the student evaluations have been good enough where I feel like maybe I could actually be me a little bit more. But then I also think that it's a little bit of my own refusal, right? Like it's a little bit of me coming into myself and saying my work should speak for itself. And if you don't like, you know, these crazy shoes I'm wearing, well, that's, that's on you. So, I mean, I think we, we could think more about like the inequalities are built in, right? Because the stakes are always going to be higher for other people. But I mean, I think it's also funny to think that like some of my colleagues have really embraced the idea of capsule fashion, where you essentially have this like small monochromatic wardrobe where like you can just kind of interchangeably wear the same thing, you know, like black mm. head to toe every single day. And I love that. And then I also feel like for me, Fashion's always been such personal expression. It brings me a lot of joy. And I'm like, why should we have to separate out the joy from our work? Yeah, I'm all for joy in the work. We need more of it. For well, sure. what do you think, Dan? What is the dressing like over there? Gosh, that's a good question. Well, uh, for those who don't know, the University of Alabama in Huntsville is a heavily engineering oriented school. In fact, only 10% of our students major in the college that I'm in, the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences. And so if it sounds like that's a big college in terms of disciplines, it absolutely is. We have everything from film and music and art to psych and social and philosophy and so forth. Unlike other institutions, UAH, our students are about 60% men and 40% women. So that's the oh. inverse of what most places are. As far as clothing, that means many of our young, traditionally aged young men wear t-shirts and jeans and uh, ratty sneakers most of the time. <laughs> and a lot of NASA t-shirts huh. because UAH is very close to Redstone Arsenal, which is where the space rocket program oh. developed in the United States after we brought our, our friend Werner von Braun from Germany after his exploits as a SS officer. Anyway, that's a different story. As far as I can tell, there's not a great prep culture as there was at the University of Virginia when we were there. Oh, thank God. Yeah, very interesting. I never attended any UVA football games, but my understanding was that sundresses were required. Oh, yeah, so many of those. And that reminds me too. So I was, you know, I mentioned Abercrombie. There was this moment in college where I was at the mall and I was recruited by Abercrombie, which for me was like shocking, right? Because like my high school self was like, oh my gosh, this is it. Like I've really made it. But you know, what's so interesting too is that I was only at the front of the store when one manager who recruited me was working. Every other time they put me in the back room. And now I've come to learn that that, Whoa. yeah, yeah. Now I've come to learn like that was part of the 
it didn't feel right. I found it questionable. But now I'm like, oh, this was a pattern. And if anybody hasn't seen the Abercrombie documentary, our own sociologist Anthony Ocampo's in there because apparently he was one of oh, the plaintiffs, really? yes, in the case against Abercrombie. And I still remember getting the card in the mail about the class action lawsuit. And I don't think I ever filled it out. And I'm like, I wish I had, you know, just even for symbolic purposes. So yeah, I mean, that was like another aspect of just the inequality built into the fashion world. Wow. In part, I asked the question because I, another podcast I listened to, Culture Study, just had an episode on fast fashion. And it was very inspiring because in this country, many of our clothes are disposable and they're made to have extremely short life cycles and they're made with fabrics that include all kinds of plastics and things that are not durable. And so it started to change the way I think about what I wear. So it was good, good coincidence in, in timing. Yeah. Well, and I'll also say, so I've now switched to um, doing these clothes rental services, which I, I have like mixed feelings about. So on the one hand, it's nice because you can get, you know, kind of designery things that you probably wouldn't pay for otherwise. And you wear them for a month and send them back. But on the other hand, you know, half the things aren't going to fit and it's a little bit of a waste of money. One thing I will say about the fast fashion question is it's so easy to like judge it, talk mm. about, you know, how horrible it is, but it's also incredibly affordable. So, yeah. you know, for those of us who can afford more, yes, like let's not do the fast fashion thing. But there's, I think sometimes like this blanket judgment of it where I'm like, well, yeah, it'd be great to buy sustainable clothes if they weren't like $200 a piece. So there was also the question of how to make sustainable clothes more affordable. And so, yeah, I mean, those are, see, these are some of the things that you know really bug me and I think about a lot but maybe not other sociologists no I thought the same thing when I listened to this podcast I was like well it's great to have like 100% wool sweater or whatever and only have like one or two but if they're $450 a piece and they come from the Shetland Islands how is that attainable yeah. on the other hand the point that they they made was like sometimes these like high-end clothing places also put this plastic stuff in their clothes so you can't even necessarily avoid it a lot of times because they just they want the margins as high as possible which goes back to the whole fact that we're in this profit-oriented system um, yes. that has yes. implications for sustainability and the livability of our planet. In any case, I think it's a great point about what's possible. And certainly when I was growing up in Southwest Missouri, there weren't a bunch of clothing retailers that were like, yes, 100% wool and 100% you know, <laughs> high quality fashion choices, not in, in my mall in Springfield. It's funny. I went to Springfield Mall too, but it was in Virginia. Ah, yeah. Well, different Springfield. Well, Haj, it's so lovely to talk with you. And thanks so much for writing this book. I really appreciated it. As someone who's done a little bit of work in social movements, it got me thinking about how exciting that time was in my academic journey. And so I appreciate you. And thanks so much for spending the time with us today. Well, thank you, Dan. Thanks for engaging the work so deeply and honestly for reading the book. So thank you. It was my pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from the University of Alabama in Huntsville. Thanks so much to our guest, Dr. Hajar Yazdiha of the University of Southern California. Thanks also to our producer for this episode, to Lena Orsa for the music, and to the Queen's Podcast Lab, which is directed by Joe Cohen. Thanks so much, Joe. 